0: Good morning, Colasse, or good evening, or good day, no matter what time of day that you're watching today's message. What an incredible and crazy time we live in. Like each of you, through the grace of God and His mercy, each of us are trying to maneuver, along with our family, what each day holds. I'm so humbled this morning to be sharing today's teaching with you, and I hope that it sparks conversation, Uh, amongst you and your family and your friends and brings redemptive moments and truth not only to each of you that are watching but also to our church um, in Beaverton. Speaking of our church community, I want to publicly recognize um, Pastor Matt and the rest of our staff for their hard and tireless work throughout this time, making adjustments and being flexible and helping us to continue to be the church in the greater Beaverton area and to live out the mission of Christ in in various different ways and making those adjustments in the here and now. Uh, Even if it's on camera and you're watching it at home, or whether we were back at uh, Beaverton High School's cafeteria, we still are the church, the called out ones, um, living good works. So 40 years ago this week, specifically May 18th, 1980. It was a Sunday morning, very early, and I was eight years old, living in southeast Portland uh, on Mount Scott, facing north towards the state of Washington. And my family was getting ready for church as we did on any normal Sunday morning. And then as we woke up, we looked, and the sky outside our windows was dark and cloudy almost and gray It was almost as if day had never started and it was still nighttime. But right away, we knew just listening to the news that something wasn't normal anymore. Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington had blown off its top laterally to the east and thick ash was everywhere. And as a young eight-year-old child, I remember kind of being in awe, like this is so cool. But another part of me was scared because normal life was put on hold. And nature was showing her wrath and her fury. Now move ahead 21 years forward from that day to a Tuesday in September in the fall, September 11th to be exact. I lived in my apartment in southwest Portland, close to the church I worked at as a youth pastor. And as I woke up through my routine, uh, the morning sports talk radio was talking about a plane that had run into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in downtown New York, So I ran to the television in my living room for an update and I watched in fear and trembling as the drama began to unfold before me. And I was there like many of you watching on live television as a second plane blasted into the other tower and our lives and our norms were interrupted. And I was sitting there fearful of my own personal security and of my whole country and my family and my friends as evil showed wrath and fury against innocent people. Which brings us to today, or at least a couple months ago. We were all living our normal lives, going to our jobs, going to church on Sundays in a high school cafeteria. And then suddenly, within 48 hours, everything, everything in our nation was shut down, except for essential work like groceries, going to the doctor if necessary. But pretty much everything was interrupted and shut down. When a virus that we can't even see was around us and an uncertainty of what that virus can do and what we know is it makes people sick and in some cases has been deadly. Every generation has its share of interruptions in the middle of our norm. And in those here and now moments we remember where we were at when they happened because they were life changing. They changed the way we live, the way we see society, where they be famines, Uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, assassinations of leaders that we admired, suicides of famous people, or just death of famous people, and terrorist acts. After these things have all happened, we wait in anticipation for things to be normal again. And then we try to remember where we were in that moment in the here and now when everything changed. As Matt read earlier from the, uh, the book of Zephaniah, we're going to be looking through his teachings. It's a very short, short book of three chapters. And to kind of give you a context of that, uh, this teaching today, let's talk about Zephaniah and what his name means. His name literally means Yahweh hides or the Lord hides or the Lord is protected or the Lord is hiding And as we read through today's teachings and we go through this discussion, I want you to think about that. Like when someone hides, they're still with you. You just can't find them or you can't see them. Or in the case maybe of us today or even the nation of Israel back then, maybe we choose not to see him. As we begin this text, um, I'm gonna go earlier into Zephaniah, into chapter one to give you a little more pretext. Chapter one, verse two Zephaniah says that Yahweh the Lord is going to come and sweep everything from the face of the earth on the day of the Lord. Now, this whole idea of the day of the Lord, it appears throughout many of the prophets. In fact, Matt alluded to it last week in his study of uh, Amos. But in this day of the Lord, this is all utter and total destruction. He almost, or he does, he takes creation And he goes backwards in separating it and just getting rid of it. He goes from the humans to the beasts, to the birds, to the fish. It's reverse creation and says it is gone and it's wiped away. But then he ends it with the idols that cause this wickedness. They're the very last one. They then are taken away. It's fairly powerful. Because God's people have turned their backs completely On God. They have worshiped idols, idols and gods that are hiding, but they're not hiding because they don't exist. They're nowhere to be seen. And these idols and this worship of false gods has caused them to put in the sacred places where God is present to place these idols and to desacred the sacred places. And in one false swoop in the day of the Lord, he declares total destruction Also during this time, Zephaniah is during the time of Josiah. And it's uncertain with scholars whether this is the early reign of Josiah or the later reign of Josiah. But what we know of Josiah is he is a king that did follow the ways of the Lord. And it's possible through the messages of Zephaniah that had a great impact on uh, the reform that he brought back into the nation of Israel at this time. So, What God does then through the book of Zephaniah is in a process of judgment in three stages. The first stage is, I am going to judge you, Israel, my people. The next stage is, I'm going to judge all nations, including your enemies. And then as we go into chapter three, I'm going to judge you again. I'm going to pour out my wrath. My wrath, think about that. You know, this is a part of the Bible that many of us are afraid to talk about, afraid to read, afraid to address, that God is an angry, wrathful God. I mean, how could he be that harsh when it says he's loving and merciful? Many atheists and people who are not believers use this argument to not follow Jesus Christ. They say, how can I follow a God who is like a cosmic bully out there? who acts like he loves us but continues to throw things at us and roll us around and act like he's not there with us. I think of it this way. You know, as a parent of of two young daughters and also as a former youth pastor, watching your children or young people you care about make bad decisions is tough. You love them so much And you want to do everything you can to set them up for success, to make positive decisions and to not suffer the consequences. But they are going to make poor decisions and they are going to suffer the consequences. And as a parent, it just hurts because you love them so much and you hate to see them suffer. And that love then turns to frustration. And when you see them really hurting because of their decisions, you get angry And it comes out as anger. The opposite of of anger is not, I mean, the opposite of love is not anger. It is indifference. And we as parents, if we were just to sit there and watch our kids and just say, okay, well, you do what you do and not feel that anger and passion, we would not be good parents. Think of it this way. Um, Last year, I developed this small pain in my back, left shoulder. And uh, like many of you, when it comes to injuries or hurts, I figure I can take care of this. I just got to have some painkillers. I'm going to do a little stretching, maybe take some time off. The last thing I want to do is go see a professional, go see a doctor And I knew it was just probably a a stretch, maybe a slight tear in my shoulder. I can take care of it on my own. But the longer I waited, the worse it got. And I knew I had to go to see a specialist. So I went to see an orthopedic specialist. And he looked at my shoulder and he took an x-ray of it. And I was sure he's gonna tell me, oh, you pulled a muscle just like you thought. He didn't say that. He said, hey, listen, why don't I have you sit back on this wall and then kind of show me your posture? And so I started to. And then he put his hand behind my back. He said, Curtis, you have terrible posture. That is why your shoulder hurts. And then he touched my neck right on the left side. And I felt this pain. He said, it's not your your shoulder that's hurt. It's your neck. And that's just causing your other muscles to hurt. He says, you're developing the future of injuries. Like everybody else, you have cell phone neck strain. And that is like our sin in a lot of ways. We have these pains, we feel like something's wrong and we have these consequences, but we do not take our sin that serious. We feel like we could deal with it on our own. But God takes all of our sins serious. He wouldn't have made the sacrifice in his son if it wasn't serious. The reality is that our sin is far worse than we ever can imagine. And God mourns what it does in the hearts and the minds of his beloved children. To him, it is a big deal. There's this quote from a book called The God Who Smokes. It's a great book, kind of uh, addressing God's wrath and his judgment. And it's by a guy by the name of Timothy Stoner. You know, I I see the joke. Timothy Stoner is writing from a book called The God Who Smokes. So we could get past that, though, to look at this, uh, this quote here, which is really profound. He writes, The love that won on the cross and wins the world is a love that is driven, determined, and defined by holiness. It is a love that flows out of the heart of a God who is transcendent, majestic, infinite in righteousness and who loves justice as much as he does mercy and he hates wickedness as much as he loves goodness. And that's what we have in Judah in this context right here. We have wickedness, we have sin and we have a God who loves his people and it makes him so angry. Our God is not a moral, therapeutical deist in the sky who just gives us good things all the time and tells us, well, that's bad or that's good. He is with us and involved in all of this because he cares about us. He is a passionate creator and his love is just as strong as his anger, but his love and, or his anger comes out of his love. So God has no choice in this story of Zephaniah to Take his restraining hand of wrath and to let it go upon his people. And it grieves him, though. Looking back upon the previous prophets we've been reading um, throughout the last couple months, look at Jeremiah. It reads in Jeremiah 48, I will wail over Moab, for all of Moab I cry out. Micah 1.8, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal, and I will moan like an owl. God always aims for redemption. Our Lord Yahweh is always looking for the redemption of his creation and of his people. That is who he is. That is his nature. And that is his story. From the Garden of Eden, redemption and being saved from from who we are and from evil has always been and always will be the point. So we move into today's chapter, which Matt read earlier from uh, chapter three. Before we get to verse 14, just a few more verses before that, God addresses a small group of people that are the remnant. And these people stick out in this area because they are humble and God-fearing people. He says in verse 12, I will leave you in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This humble crew of people, this small group left in the middle of the devastation, is a humble crew that's humble both in material things and in politics. They are lowly, and they see themselves as servants to the one almighty Yahweh, the Lord. This is a description of what the Messiah truly is going to be, and the Messiah that we know today in Jesus Christ, that this redemption, this restoration that they experienced and that we are experiencing in our everyday lives is in this humble servant we call Jesus. Jesus. If we wanna know what Jesus looks like or what a follower of Jesus looks like, we're not to look towards the celebrity pastors, the very large churches, the people that are representing the whole church by by a name and who their pastor is or who their leader is. We are to look to the least of these, those who are humble, those who are God-fearing, those who are poor in spirit. This is a reflection Of what the church should be today, this is a reflection of what that remnant in Judah was in those days. So the reason why I want to focus then finally on the section of chapter 3 in Zephaniah, starting with verse 14, is because many scholars actually called this section of Zephaniah the gospel of Zephaniah. Now, even though it's not part of our regular gospel readings in the New Testament, it is called the gospel because it really sets up the saving grace of Jesus Christ and how seriously God takes sin and how God's over-the-top grace is out there for the weary, the worn out, the scattered, and for people like you and I who are in the here and now uncertain of what the norm is going to be. We are saved people that believe in grace, But because God is a wrathful God and a large God and a God we will never completely comprehend, we can't take his grace lightly. It is not cheap. We can't and we won't. Now, starting with the the first verse there of uh, Zephaniah 3, verse 14, sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, he says. He tells us to rejoice and to sing. He describes this expression of what it means to let out the joy, which is a very odd thing to say considering all that we just read in Zephaniah in the previous two and a half chapters. Because that was about God's judgment. Definitely, he is a God of judgment and wrath. But we also see in verses like Psalm 103, verse eight and nine, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Think of that about that again. He will not keep his anger forever. He has anger, but because of his love for his children, it is not for eternity. Uh, verse three, uh, verse fifteen in chapter three. Really key point next is, it says, not only has God taken away our judgment, but God is now with us. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Think about that. This God who by definition of Zephaniah's name, who was hidden, who was hiding, or we can't see him, but he is here. He is revealing himself in the midst of this wrath and judgment. He has come out from behind the couch during hide and seek. He has lifted the bedspread and said, here I am. And you know what? I've been here the whole time. Maybe you chose not to see me, but that didn't change, that I want to be seen. And not only do I want to be seen, I stand next to you as we rejoice and get excited in the here and the now. There's a story I read about a wedding, a very traditional wedding where the groom traditionally is up with the minister at the altar right there, and the bride is coming down the center aisle. Everybody stands up and gasps as they see the beauty of this bride, including the groom who is waiting. But the groom cannot stand it. He shoves the minister aside. He runs down the aisle, and he almost tackles his new bride as he embraces her and says, I love you. I can't wait to marry you. Can't wait enough for you to even get to the altar. That's how much I love you. That's how much God loves us. While we are going towards him, there's story after story in scripture of us coming to him when in fact he is running to us because he's there in our midst. And he desires so much to be with us and for us to follow him. Verse 17 in Zephaniah says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. I don't know about you, but having a God in my midst who's described as mighty brings so much reassurance to me. It wipes away the fear that my God is not just this wimpy deity that is beside me who's like, I'm with you, we're gonna take care of this together. No, my God is a warrior. My God has the ability to defend his people. My God is strong and mighty. He is fierce and he is with us. Ending with the last verses here of 19 and 20. You could read along with me if you have your Bible available. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in. And at that time, when I gather you together, For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The holy Lord Yahweh God who punishes sin is going to take away the judgments and he's going to live among you and he's going to bring us all in, it says. Gather us all together and we will praise and celebrate and rejoice together. What an incredible picture and that's why if you're reading books like Zephaniah and you think about God as merciful and, and also like wrathful and a judge and is sitting there throwing lightning bolts at us, maybe he is doing that to an extent, but that's not who he is. He is waiting for redemption. He is waiting for change. He's waiting for us. In fact, he's running towards us in this here and this now, no matter what our situation may be. In our, if you've experienced heartache lately, if you feel unloved or you feel like you cannot love yourself, you could be totally dependent on this God, on our God. If you are suffering through a natural disaster, a storm, or maybe a storm of just all kinds of situations, you've lost your job, you don't know where your paycheck is going to come from your money to pay the bills. You have a God you could depend on who is standing in your midst in the here and now. If you are scared about this pandemic and about COVID-19, is your family going to sick? What's your kids going to do? What about your parents? Are you, are you going to be able to, to live a normal life? I don't know what normal is, but you could depend on God. People throw around today like it's a marketing term, uncertain or uncertainty. If you wanna sell a car, you gotta say in these uncertain times. If you want to talk about your school's next process of opening up school, we are living in uncertain times. It's just used over and over again, and rightly so. There's not one of us that has certainty about anything about this pandemic. But we have one kind of certainty, and that is our Lord God Yahweh is with us and in our midst through this whole thing. He has been with us the whole time. He is standing with us in our midst, rejoicing. And he always was there and always will be. I want to end with this quote by Mark S. Smith. who's a Bible scholar at Yale. He says, Uncertainty may leave us open to wander a bit, but it also opens us to wonder. Wonder is, out, is, is our sense of the vastly more beyond us and in us and through us as well. Wonder is a signal of our human intuition that the universe out there is not empty and cold, but vastly deep and full. Humanity too is a signal of fullness of life. Just when we think we are looking for that hidden God, He's been there the whole time, standing right beside us, and he comes right up to us, and he recognizes us as his son, as his daughter, and he greets us and embraces us in this here and now, in the middle of these times. I want you to ask yourself first as an individual, how how that has changed me? Do I recognize the presence of God, the creator of the universe, the great warrior, the judge, Is he right with me? And how am I manifesting that in my everyday life? How am I communicating that? How does that change my everyday actions? And not just actions when I wait for church to open or I wait for schools to open or when I could see certain people, but my actions today. And then finally, as a church, how are we giving that message? How are we doing things that are showing that God is in our midst And our God is bigger than all this, is bigger than any virus that is here, any virus that's going to come. He stands in our midst. And any wrath and judgment is just acting out of love. Let us pray. Father, you you challenge us you place your hand upon us and your spirit to be moved from being stuck in these moments these here and nows where our normal or what we think is normal is interrupted and devastated and when uncertainty and doubt crawls into our mind and in our hearts we're scared we don't know what to do. Lord, we're reminded through books like Zephaniah in this, in this text that you are in our midst. You gather us in, your children. And whether or not it's your judgment and why these things happen, whatever happens, it happens to all of us and you're beside us through it all. Lord, I pray that that changes us and it changes our perspective of who we are and especially of who you are. And also too, that we as the church are, are moved by your movements. As we go forward into this weekend and next week, we continue to seek your grace and your mercy and just bathe in it and be comforted by it through these difficult times that come up. now, and in the future. We lift up this time in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.